It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Do you believe you could live a pain free, vital life? Do you want to step back into your power and share your gifts with the world? Are you ready to make a commitment to you? It's time to reclaim your inheritance as a self-healer. Welcome to The Nature of Healing. Hello, healers. I'm Roseanne. How's your health? If you don't have your health, what do you really have? Health is not only what we choose to put into our bodies and minds, from the foods we eat to the thoughts we think, our health is also related to our exposures. Today, we're going to delve into the exposures we face from wireless technology. 5G is the fifth generation cellular network technology using pulsed millimeter waves at high frequencies to carry information that claims to run everything from cell phones to driverless cars smart appliances, better virtual reality, faster downloads, artificial intelligence, smart cities, and the Internet of Things. This means that everything we own and buy will have a microchip or antenna and will connect wirelessly from milk cartons to refrigerators, toothbrushes to diapers. So your refrigerator can send a message to your cell phone to buy milk. All of these devices and cell towers generate electromagnetic fields that have negative health consequences, which we'll discuss. But as always, we'll also be talking about solutions. Joining me today is Brandon LaGreca. Brandon is a 2005 graduate of the Oregon College of Oriental Medicine, a licensed acupuncturist in the state of Wisconsin, and nationally certified in the practice of Oriental Medicine. He's a columnist for Acupuncture Today and the author of two books, his latest, Cancer and EMF Radiation, How to Protect Yourself from the Silent Carcinogen of Electromagnetic Pollution. In 2015, Brandon was diagnosed with stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and reversed his diagnosis eight months later by following an integrative medicine protocol. Brandon created EmpoweredPatientBlog.com to share his experience. Welcome, Brandon, to the Nature of Healing podcast. Thank you, Roseanne. It's great to talk with you. Great that you're here to share what you know. So first, congratulations on your disease reversal and all the work that you do to bring healing to others. Oh, yes. It's been quite a journey, but uh, it's good to be uh, acknowledged for that and appreciated. And I appreciate your work and having this podcast and sharing with others as well. Thank you. My pleasure. We know from a recent court ruling that glyphosate is a carcinogen tied to a form of cancer called non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. We also know from research that the ionizing radiation of EM fields cause cancer. When you put these two exposures together, it's not surprising that cancer rates continue to skyrocket. Mm-hmm. Why were you compelled to write your book about this association between EM fields and cancer? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, frankly, it's because I felt like it was the elephant in the room. It was the very topic that is underreported and underacknowledged. And by that, I mean we have a good understanding of how carcinogens work and how certain carcinogens uh, interplay with the cancer process. But we've had, in this case, at least a couple decades of research on electromagnetic fields, very specific research that uh, does tend to suggest that non-native EMFs are a potent human carcinogen. And yet when trying to find, you know, a approachable or accessible material for the average person to read, to learn about that, it really didn't exist. So uh, as both as a clinician and as a cancer patient, and then as I thought about starting my career writing about this subject, this was the first thing I felt I needed to tackle. 
Well, we're all grateful for that because while there is information here and there and and you can find it, you have to dig for it. It's not being publicized and the government's not giving information. One thing that I learned in my own research about these frequencies was from Dr. Joel Murkowitz. I don't know if you know, have heard of him. Uh, He's in California, I believe, at the university. Is that 5G studies are misleading because they don't describe the pulsed waves, the dangers of pulsed waves. And that's Mm -hmm. important because research already shows how pulsed microwaves have more profound biological effects on our bodies compared to non-pulsed waves. What else should people know about these waves that cause damage? Well, several things. Uh, You pointed out a very important distinction right off the bat. You know, we have evolved as all of nature for that matter, but as human beings within electromagnetic fields. I mean, the Earth itself has an electromagnetic field. We get solar radiation, which is a form of electromagnetic radiation. But all of these things, not only did we evolve for them, but in particular, the Earth's magnetic field is what's considered DC or direct current. It doesn't pulse the way that the electricity going through our circuits or way that these microwaves um, do. And so the, the right off the bat, like you, like you said, that, that distinction is very clear. The, the second is, is the, what we're talking about here is what's called non-native electromagnetic fields, which means they are man-made. We have not evolved with them for thousands and thousands of years. And most of what we're going to probably talk about today is this band, which is considered a radio frequency or microwave radiation. Now, Classically, what a lot of people would recognize that as, for instance, you know, the old-fashioned cordless phones that we would have, or even, you know, up to Bluetooth technology, was anywhere from 700 megahertz to 6 gigahertz. And that was considered the fourth generation uh, rollout from telecommunications companies. Uh, Now we're encountering 5G, or the fifth generation telecommunications rollout. And here we're talking about an even higher frequency. Now we're up to 6 gigahertz to 300 gigahertz. And so substantially now we have not only more of these non-native EMFs surrounding us day in and day out from all different sources. And you did a great job summarizing what this future looks like in terms of the internet and things and the interconnectivity wirelessly of all these devices. But we're seeing them at higher frequencies than ever before. So those are the the, the real main distinctions between this natural uh, electromagnetic environment that uh, we have evolved in and this this, uh, lockstep march into this technological future with ever-increasing devices around us with ever-higher frequencies. Yeah, and speaking of that, let's go into more of the health effects associated with this. That was probably one of your motivations in writing the book. What is this association that we see between these specific 5Gs and health effects, or is it a combination of all the frequencies? Yeah, that also is an excellent question. And the the most honest and scientific answer is we don't know for sure. So when I was doing the research for this book, most of what I can really find was research dealing with 3G and 4G technology. Mm-hmm. There isn't a whole lot of 5G information out there in the research literature. So for instance, if I'm looking at epidemiological studies of people using cell phones, we're really only dealing with 4G technology, uh, mostly because these studies were already looking at 10, 12, 15 years. And now with 5G coming out as it is right now, we don't really have a mature consensus as to what those specific frequencies are doing to the body. So what I've identified is four corroborating lines of evidence, just looking at the research that I could find. And those lines of evidence include the following, epidemiological studies, experimental studies, looking at very specifically, do we see what we expect to see? Uh, Mechanistic studies, looking at the mechanisms involved behind how EMF could possibly be acting as a carcinogen, and then animal studies. And we can dive into the specifics of these, but at face value, these four different kinds of evidence taken collectively start to paint a picture of what we can maybe expect down the line looking at 5G, even if we don't have um, all of that kind of research uh, coming to the surface. 
you know, you talked about not a lot of scientific data out there about 5G, but the military already uses this knowledge against us uh, in in millimeter frequency technology called active denial systems, and it's used as crowd uh, crowd control weaponry. So uh, even though we might not know about it, the government sure has some background information on this. Absolutely. That's 100% true. In fact, people, if they just hear that, would think that's something con- uh, like a conspiracy. But if you go right to <laughs> the government's website on that, they actually list and openly uh, discuss how they use those frequencies for exactly what you just uh, implied. So that's, that's, that's no mystery. And that has been in effect for quite some time. Well, it sounds like you're helping us all catch up on what the government already knows. <laughs> um, how does the industry itself get away with saying that these frequencies do not cause cancer if they also say that not enough information has been studied? Yeah. So I, I have a, a couple responses to that. I think one of them and it, it really bears out when I started looking at the epidemiological research. So let's first discuss what that is. Epidemiology is looking at a bunch of people who have a certain disease or an outcome and then looking back retrospectively and saying, can we correlate you know, whatever the trigger or the mechanism we think to that current disease state? So we'll, we'll take cell phones, for instance. You know, If we say that out of this cohort, these many people have a specific kind of brain cancer, glioma. Then we could say, okay, what was their cell phone use and how frequent was that cell phone use over the last 10, 15 years? Well, what I found specifically in this case is you have to get beyond 10 years to at least start seeing an inkling of an increase of glioma, acoustic neuroma, and salivary gland tumors. Anything prior to that, you're not really going to see it show up in epidemiology. So by that, I mean, if you were to take short-term studies, five years, eight years, but anything really less than 10, that effect's not going to show up yet. In some ways, it's really analogous to saying, well, you can smoke one, two cigarettes a day, or maybe even a half a pack, or maybe even a pack of cigarette, pack of cigarettes a day for five, 10 years. Now you might have a hacking cough and you may get pneumonia every once in a while, but you're not going to see lung cancer yet. That might be 15 or 20 years down the line. So it's, it's a convenient lawyer answer, but a, the telecommunications company could look at very short-sighted research and then conclude from that that we're not seeing evidence. Uh, however, now if you are going to look a little further out, and then as I tried to point out in my book, look at different lines of evidence and put them there together collectively, paints quite a different picture. Yeah, so you're talking about synergistic effects. If you have chemical exposures and you add these frequencies on top of it, your risk of cancer I think could dramatically go up. I mean, there's some evidence to show this already, but they're not, you know, the industry itself won't report on synergistic effects with other industry contaminants, just like glyphosate won't, you know, expose the truth about how their chemicals are affected more when you have these frequencies added. Absolutely. 100%. That is the case. And, and I'm going to speak more philosophically for a moment, but I Mm -hmm. think exactly what you just said is the story of cancer. We absolutely need a much broader perspective when it comes to cancer, because if you are just going to ascribe philosophically to this idea that there's one cause and one treatment, you're going to get nowhere. I mean, that's why the so-called war on cancer has been largely fruitless for the last few decades you have to look at the broader wisdom of environmental medicine. And by that, I mean, you have to see how all of these things collectively, synergistically interact with the human body. You know, we think in Chinese medicine that there are two main thrusts of health and wellness. One is what is our internal state? And, and, and to that, the, the, the founders of Chinese medicine say that imbalances within the emotions and we can further extrapolate to say stresses how we are dealing and coping with life within this you know co-creative world that we live in how how all of that is welling up with inside of us and how we are dealing with that is one distinct cause of disharmony within the body but the second which is very clear in chinese medicine are what are all the external factors now in the time of the classics of chinese medicine they were speaking very poetically and saying things like wind heat or wind cold invasion. And and some of those things tend to correlate in modern 
sciences, things like infections, you know, viruses and bacteria. But there is this m massive new world that we live in of chemicals, electromagnetic fields, which would add to this uh, notion of external causes. And where those two things meet is really the art and science of healing. What's coming forth within us and what's coming forth externally. But without this appreciation for environmental medicine, without an under a willingness at least to say, what are all this multitude of factors environmentally that collectively are interacting with my individual genetics, my individual context of my health, my diet, my lifestyle. I mean, that's a lot. I mean, we don't have, even though we have amazing computers that run amazing algorithms these days, there is no one central database that can show anybody what their cancer risk is, given how many different carcinogens we're exposed to, given someone's individual genetics. It's a big story, but to not at least think about or talk on that level is completely missing the point. Thank you so much for putting it that way. That's the most clear, concise way I've ever, I've ever heard that answer. I mean, you really summed it up nicely. It's we are a collective of ecosystems just like nature is. And there's no way you can use the current science today to describe that because it just can't do it. It's, it's a different world altogether. It's apples and oranges. You can't compare the two, you know, at the, at the core. So I really appreciated how you put that. Sure. And so then, it, you know, and it behooves us, I mean, particularly a cancer patient like myself, who is, is trying to be extremely cautious and apply the precautionary principle. How do we take, for instance, this evidence about electromagnetic fields and how can we apply that and maybe have a bit more of a conservative approach to how we're interacting with all these technologies? You know, the word for that is translational research. How do we take the bare bones of what we're starting to see kind of bubble up within the research, but then really try to apply that practically? How can we make wise decisions about how we're interacting with technology based upon it? And you being a healer and having all this knowledge base that can't be studied in the scientific gold standard style, how did you take your knowledge and heal yourself. I mean, if you want to just give a basic summary, you don't have to <laughs> go into Yeah, sure. Details. Well, you know, I think the first thing that I did when I got my diagnosis, so I'll kind of take you back and, and mm -hmm. set, the, set the stage. It was February of 2015, and I had just spent a long w winter having increasingly more and more issues with severe abdominal pain. And finally, one episode was so bad that it got me into the, to the ER and they did a CT scan and that's when they discovered that I had very large lymph tumors all throughout my abdominal cavity, the, the biggest of which I think was about four inches. And so the, the cause essentially of my pain was a, a bowel obstruction, a small bowel obstruction because one of those tumors was compressing the intestines. So from that, you know, now I'm in two worlds. One, I have to think short term in terms of how am I going to actually prevent, you know, getting surgery and getting my intestines resection. But then the long term, obviously, is how am I going to now look at and think about being a cancer patient? So skipping to that longer story, which is, you know, the context in which we're talking about this. I think the first thing I did was I took my time. I did not rush into any decisions. And by that, I mean, I didn't just jump into the first thing that the first oncologist told me to do. I got a few different opinions from a few different oncologists and, and one that I consider to be wonderful for his open-mindedness and what I eventually decided on. And what was recommended to me from the get-go was basically the highest dose of um, the strongest chemotherapy drugs because of my tumor burden being so high and because I was already manifesting symptoms. And in the oncology world, that's called induction chemotherapy. Very high dose, hopefully get you in remission in short order and then keep you there for as long as possible, which is called durable remission. And I say that because for the particular kind of slow growing or indolent cancer I was diagnosed with, there is no conventional cure for it. So the idea is let's hope to put you in remission and then maybe four or five years down the line, if it's relapsed, we might have better drugs at that point. So that's kind of the 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 order of events and in, in, in within the thinking of conventional oncology and i certainly could have gone that route but i didn't for a number of reasons um, this will sound funny to a lot of people but one reason why i didn't choose ultimately to seek therapy with chemotherapy is because i didn't want to feel like a cancer patient 
And again, that might sound odd because here I am dealing with this massive tumor burden, but um, in some ways, psychologically, I had to be in the right framework and the right mindset with which to move forward and try to be empowered in the process. So I started making decisions based upon, in my case as a clinician, what will I really feel best about? What will I feel good about? I will not feel good about, for instance, moving forward with the highest dose chemotherapy and um, regretting it later. So I thought what I would do is I would consult with um, a lot of colleagues and, and dear friends of mine, some of which who are acupuncturists, naturopaths, integrative medical doctors, functional medicine practitioners. And I started fleshing out a program for myself, an integrative protocol. And now, and that included my conventional oncologist and what I ultimately sold him on as a principal in which he um, begrudgingly accepted was I would access one element of conventional oncology, which is an immunotherapy drug. And that one immunotherapy drug um, that I chose to, to, to utilize is one that just helps to lower tumor burden. And essentially what it does is it helps your body's own immune system to target the cancer cells. And between those two things, I initially started taking this immunotherapy drug once a week for the first month. And we did a follow-up scan and I had a little bit reduction in tumor burden. It was about 30%. But right about that point, at that one-month mark, as I was doing all this research, then I really kicked my integrative protocol into full swing. Everything that I had been learning about that last month, talking with, uh, with colleagues, I implemented. And that was extensive. It dealt with things like uh, a little change in diet, nutrition, a lot of different kinds of herbal therapy, detoxification in, in several different forms. It had a lot to do with just kind of mindset, spiritual awareness, you know, what, what is my life? What does things look like going forward from here? It's particularly since I had a young family at, the, at that point and I was, you know, uh, just have my own business and being the, the sole source of income. So a lot of that kind of behavioral, spiritual, mental, just getting in the right mindset um, was huge as well. And so putting all those little pieces together and then checking in with all these different practitioners and that was the thrust for the next six, seven months. And then that took us into fall of 2015 uh, where I was at that point only getting one of these immunotherapy sessions every two months. But uh, I rode that out, did all these other different protocols and had a clean PET scan in November. It was the week before Thanksgiving. So I had a lot to be thankful for. That was in 2015, and now we're here in 2019, and um, so far so good. I, you know, I knock on wood and I give thanks, and and I, I should, I probably should have prefaced before I said all this, but I'll say it now. Yeah, I did everything I did because that's what I felt good about, and I figure I can always go back to doing chemotherapy later if what I chose did not work as a therapy. But having said that, I don't want to sound cavalier like I've got it all figured out either. I mean, cancer is an extremely complex disease, and the choices that I made. All I can say for certain is that they have worked for me thus far. I can't make any claim that they would work for absolutely anybody else, but I can at least say that I have some principles in mind that when I do have cancer patients come to my clinic, I can convey those principles and at least give them a start of how to think about you know, their process. And in some ways, the most important uh, take-home or you know, takeaway message of all of that is if in fact the things, the therapies that I have done up at this point have been successful, uh, I can keep doing them. And I have over these last four years, a lot of the same herbal therapies and detoxification routines and, and mindset. I keep doing those things. And you can't do that with conventional oncology. You can't do that with chemotherapy. You know, that you would, you would die from the treatment long before uh, anything else. So I think there's a lot of wisdom that natural therapies, although they can be slightly toxic in some instances, they are sustainable. You can do them long-term. And so my hope at this point is that I can keep doing what I'm doing and it'll continue working and uh, hopefully keep everything in a state of uh, balance from there. So that's that, my story in a nutshell. That is a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that. That is amazing. And I think you can claim success. <laughs> I think you have done it. And I think we're all challenged uh, in life with 
the ability to do this because we are all self-healers. We're born to heal ourselves. And this is the paradigm of nature. And so when we connect to nature and you've given yourself the opportunity to test that theory, you were able to come back into balance. That's what nature strives for, balance. So you have lived it. And I think that's the message that maybe you know, we create these circumstances to come about so we make a choice, so we declare who we are, so we have the opportunity to live this journey and to prove it out. And you are a healer. You're, you're, you're a student of Eastern medicine. That is the philosophy of Eastern medicine. And you expressed it through your physical body uh, and your mind. And now you are an example for other people to hold up and say, I if I want to choose that direction. I have a perfect example here in Brandon. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what all of us healers, and I'm talking about everybody listening out there, we're all healers. Um, And you have the choice to do exactly what Brandon did. And thank you for sharing that. Oh, you're welcome. So let's talk about measuring exposures because people are going to wonder, okay, we're surrounded by these frequencies. And even though we're frequencies, we need to distinguish (laughs) which frequencies are harmful. You mentioned in your book that a problem with the way industry and government rate EMF exposure is using the SAR rating. Why is that? Yeah, so SAR rating, which stands for Specific Absorption Rate, uh, is a metric used by the telecommunications industry to understand the thermal effect of cell phone use. And so how this is calculated is there is a dummy of a human head. And the material in which this this dummy head is made of is is supposed to mimic uh, the skull and the penetration through those tissues of radiation from a cell phone. And so they strap a cell phone to the head of this dummy, and then they have a very sensitive equipment on the inside of that dummy head to measure um, the heat that is generated from microwave radiation. So an important point here, uh, you might may or may not have a microwave oven in your house. That microwave is using microwave radiation, waves, to heat up the water molecules, to excite the water molecules in food, and then hence creates this thermal effect, heats up your food. Now, we don't use one in our home, but that's the basic principle of how a microwave works. Now, a cell phone really is just a microwave strapped to your head. The difference, it's the same frequency, it's the same sized wave, the difference is the wattage is far less. So the power output is less. So although it will create a somewhat of a thermal effect, and obviously it's not near the extent of a microwave oven, but it's a microwave strapped to your head nonetheless. So in this instance, using this dummy head and putting the cell phone next to it, this specific absorption rate is measuring the amount of heat generated um, as applied to that dummy. Now, there's two essential problems associated with this kind of metric. The first is that the modeling is of an adult male skull. Now, immediately, at least what comes to mind for me, is the problem with that as our model for the thermal effect is children are using cell phones in ever-increasing ways, and their skull bones are far thinner than the modeling of an adult male skull. The second problem is that what they're only measuring with the specific absorption rate is the thermal effect only. So what if there is a non-thermal, which means a non-heating effect that is occurring from these microwaves? And that's actually a much better question to ask. And when I dug a little deeper into that, I found something quite compelling. The earliest research into answering that very question, is there a non-thermal effect from non-native EMF, specifically microwave radiation, goes back all the way to 1995, where Dr. Henry Lai, he exposed rat brain cells to microwave radiation, and he found that when you even have a SAR of 1.2 watts, he was observing DNA strand breaks. Okay, it's interesting, though it's rat brain cells. Well, that caught the attention of Dr. George Carlo, and very interesting guy, Dr. George Carlo, uh, he was actually brought on by the telecommunications industry. 
in uh, what was then called the Wireless Technology Research Project, or the WTR. And as, the, oh, as overseeing all of this research, he wanted to look a little bit deeper into what Dr. Henry Lai found. And so he brought on a, a research team, Drs. Tyson Hook. And they thought they can do uh, an even more precise job of measuring these effects from microwave radiation. And so they did something a little different. Instead of rat brain cells, they took human blood cells. And this is in 1998, where an, a new test was being utilized to see if what kinds of exposures could possibly causing DNA damage. And so that new test was measuring the presence of micronuclei. I'll explain what that means. So if you look at inside a cell, there's the nucleus. And in that nucleus is our DNA all wrapped up tight, okay? Micronuclei are little fragments of DNA. You're not really supposed to see those because they are all bound together in this double helix of DNA. So if you were in a test tube to, to examine closely and measure the presence of micronuclei, what you can infer from that is there has been some form of chromosome damage that has released, in some ways, almost like open tissue, this micronuclei that can then be measured. So that was the new test that was implemented by Dr. Tyson, Drs. Tyson Hook, and they did it with human blood cells. And lo and behold, back in 1998, what they found is they can measure chromosome damage by virtue of the presence of micronuclei from a SAR rating as low as one watt per kilogram. Now, to put that into perspective, the FCC guideline currently for phones is they have to be less than 1.6 watts per kilogram. So here we are measuring DNA damage at 1 watt per kilogram, and yet the FCC guideline is 1.6 watts per kilogram. Now, mind you, this is not a thermal effect. This is a non-thermal effect that's occurring simply by virtue of the exposure of that particular frequency. Um, in these test tube experiments at, you know, a, at a SAR rating that's less than what is the current guideline. And that goes back to 1998. Wow. So what we said before is that the government claims that they don't, or the industry claims that they don't have the research to show this connection to cancer. And here they do. You're just <laughs> showing that they do. Well, and, and then, you know, fast forward, that was 1998, but fast forward to 2011, the World Health Organization, at that point, now this is eight years ago, they at least had the foresight to categorize microwave radiation as a group B, group 2B carcinogen. Uh, that puts it in the same category as lead and DDT. Wow. So, I mean, at least in the eyes of the WHO, they've had this notion that certainly there's enough evidence to suggest. Now, you know, how that has trickled down to the media and to, into uh, public policy, that's a different story. Well, it hasn't trickled down, has it? <laughs> I mean, it's just like, move along, move along. We don't have to talk about these things. Um, yeah, unfortunately so. And, and what it reminds me of, and I... I you know, I'm trying to draw this analogy in the book, is that this really follows the same pattern of the tobacco industry and cigarette smoking. You know, we, we were smoking like chimneys in the, in the last century for decades before we really had good, solid evidence uh, of, you know, the lung cancer effect. And so it seems to be taking a parallel course. Now, in our case, now with cigarette smoking, we are on the other side of that research curve. You know, we have this mature consensus that we can say, as almost self-evident that, you know, cigarette smoking for any extended period of time in most individuals, there's always outliers, but in most individuals will result in some form of lung cancer, if not some other major health crisis. The difference with this whole EMF story is we're on the, the beginning end of the curve. We don't have a mature consensus yet. We're still compiling research. But it seems to be this similar situation that if we had the foresight of saying, well, okay, well, where is this going now in 20, 30 years? Is it going to be like cigarette smoking where the people who are using cell phones on one side of their head are having this massive increase in glioma? Well, I think that's my fear. I think that's one of the main concerns I have um, as a specific you know, outcome from uh, EMF exposure. That you're talking about perspective uh, from the Western medicine side, they they don't have the information. They they will always claim that they don't have the information. That more study needs to be done. But as we know from Eastern medicine and, and natural healers, <clears throat> there are people like 
and MDs, I would say, such as Dr. Harvey Biggleson, who wrote how EMFs interact with scar tissue to create cancer since scar tissue blocks chi and accumulates these frequencies. There's also Dr. Richard Blaylock, who wrote about the depletion of calcium from cells, mm -hmm. you know, and both of these are medical doctors. Mm -hmm. You know, you have some memorable connections in your book that I read that you made from your research. And one of them was this connection between EMFs and melatonin. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So this harkens back to what are the possible mechanisms if we are to expect an effect from EMF exposure, how can that effect come about? You know, what is the exact mechanism? And there are several that have been pointed out and it's likely that all of them are uh, in some ways impacting the human body. But the one that's, that certainly is interesting that you pointed out is this consequence of melatonin suppression. And so clearly in the research literature, we have a, a body of evidence that suggests that exposure to these uh, non-native EMFs cause this lowering of melatonin in the body. So why is that relevant? Well, melatonin is a free radical scavenger, a very potent one at that. Everyone knows it sense of it being the sleep hormone, what makes us sleepy. Melatonin tends to rise in the evening as light levels go down as we prepare for sleep. And through the overnight is when we tend to, uh, our bodies really tend to repair it's, you know, and, and heal in, in a very profound way. And melatonin is part of that process. So as a free radical scavenger, essentially what we're looking at is, okay, well, if we know for sure that one of the hallmarks of cancer is free radical damage, something that's you know, a form of oxidation causing free radical damage, for instance. What does our body have to check that damage? Well, one of those uh, natural hormones is melatonin as a free radical scavenger. And so the interesting thing for me, again, looking philosophically at this, is even if it, it, we did not have evidence that electromagnetic fields directly cause cancer, although I think we do, but even if that research didn't exist, if at least there was a mechanism where electromagnetic fields suppress melatonin output, then at least you have an indirect correlation to how cancer can form, because at least then you can say, this EMF is causing my body to be unable to, you know, um, to heal from the effects of damage, and that in itself can cause a cancer process. So it's almost of saying, even though it may not directly cause cancer, it prevents our body from being able to treat cancer. And that's an important distinction because all of us in the modern world have precancerous cells that are developing all the time. Normally, our body keeps those precancerous cells in check. Our immune system is strong enough that it finds these little rogue cells throughout the body and it cleans them up. But then if there's a breakdown in our immune system, if our nutrition is not up to par, if there are other environmental carcinogens that we're being exposed to collectively, then you start seeing these little nests of rogue cells uh, grow into tumors, maybe over the course of years or decades. And if melatonin is not there to be this kind of check gate to uh, help the immune system to identify and eliminate these rogue cells, then you can have cancer formation again that... Uh, is left unchecked. So that's the melatonin story. Thank you. And I didn't realize that melatonin was a free radical scavenger, but that makes a lot of sense. And it, it does uh, make sense that all of these are really not, they're not indirect effects. They are direct effects because everything's connected. Absolutely. And it's, it's like, um, it's like glyphosate, the, the Monsanto's of the world that put out glyphosate is Roundup herbicide and they spray it on crops as a drying agent before harvest and that's what everybody's eating. They say, oh, this is perfectly safe for human consumption. It doesn't affect human cells, but it does affect our microbial cells and our microbes are 10 to 1 more numerous than our own cells. I believe all of these are direct effects, just like the effects of microwaves. I don't have a microwave uh, in my kitchen either because what that does to food is a direct effect on my body. So anyway, we've come now to the most important part or one of the most important parts of this discussion, and that is how to empower ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, in chapter five of your book, you talk about avoidance strategies, remediation strategies, and shielding strategies. Can you give a few examples of each of those? 
Sure. Avoidance is probably the most easy to understand, and, and that is a lot of electromagnetic fields, the further you get away from them, the less uh, impact they will have on the body. And so, um, you know, this is one of these areas that you don't have to guess. You can test, and by that, you can buy meters to test for all these different kinds of EMFs that we're talking about today. And we give very specific meter recommendations in the afterword of the book and how to, you know, kind of walk about your home and office and measure them. But say something like a lamp or a, um, or a alarm clock in your bedside stand, those things produce an electromagnetic field and that electromagnetic field will come out several inches to several feet, depending on the circuitry and the electronics of that particular device. And you could measure that. But I would say probably a really bare bones easy way to assess is if you can reach out from your bed with your arm and touch a lamp or an alarm clock, it's likely too close to you. Now you can prove that to yourself with a meter and see how far the uh, electric and magnetic field emanates from that lamp or that alarm clock. But generally speaking, if you could reach out and touch it, it's probably a bit too close and likely it's very close to your head. And so what we say in physics is that the field falls off the square of the distance. So very rapidly, exponentially, the further you move away from electronic devices, the less effect they are going to have on the body. So that's avoidance, trying not to put yourself in the line of, um, you know, lights, electronic devices. You don't want to be standing up really close to anything for that matter. When it comes to remediation, this is a very specific strategy for a very specific kind of EMF. So we didn't get to, to, to delve into all the different, you know, subsets of EMF, but there's one called dirty electricity, um, or the more proper term for it is voltage transients. And these are just these little spikes in the kilohertz range, these harmonics that occur within the, um, the normal 50 to 60 hertz electric field that is powering our house, you know, that's coming out of every outlet. And... Um, to remediate these little spikes in uh, a voltage, you can buy uh, these little filters that plug in that through the principle of capacitance, um, they actually pull this excess current out of the circuitry itself. And so again, this is a very thing to easy to measure and then to take steps to remediate. The final one, which um, is shielding, deals with the principle that a lot of electromagnetic magnetic fields, you could put something between you and the source of it and block it. Now, the caveat here is that this only really works for electric fields. Magnetic fields, you really can't block. But for instance, the wiring in your house that's behind the walls, if that wiring was encased in a metal conduit, the electric field would not be measurable. It would be completely shielded by the metal conduit that which that wire is running through. Now the magnetic field would still be measurable, but you can use this principle at least to put certain kinds of shielding in place that can block the transmission of, for instance, electric currents or microwave radiation. Now for someone who was exquisitely sensitive to microwave radiation, let's say they live next to a cell phone tower and they can't move, there are very specific materials that you can buy, for instance, paint for the walls and treatments for the windows that would block that microwave radiation. Now that would come at great expense and you would either have to do it yourself or find a contractor who's skilled in um, you know, EMF mitigation, but it's possible. I mean, there are ways that you could you know, build a home, for instance, that tries to shield from as much EMF as possible. So those are the three main strategies that we that we talk about in the book. Excellent. Great advice. Um, and if individuals want to self-test, do you recommend a type of meter to do that? Yeah, so there are several. Um, basically, when it comes to just, you know, AC current, which means, you know, the, the, the power that's running things like lamps and computers and such, what you're looking to get is a tri-field meter, and that measures AC electric, AC magnetic. When it comes to microwave radiation or radio frequency, you would need then what's called a microwave meter. And there are several really good ones out there. And then the final one for measuring voltage transient, which you, what you need is what's called an EMI meter. And that stands for electromagnetic interference. And that's a very specific meter that has a plug that you would stick into an outlet and it would give you a number as to the amount of these, uh, this dirty electricity that's in any given circuit. So all three of those meters 
that you could experiment with and do some of this testing on your own. Uh, in some cases, depending on where you live, there may be an EM, EMF uh, specialist who you could hire and come to their home that has probably even more expensive professional meters that can measure um, these fields for you. That sounds great. And I think people should pick up a copy of your book just to identify all of the options available to do this yourself if you don't want to hire a contractor and kind of empower yourself and know that this is not insurmountable. But the fact that when I drive down the Beltline in Madison, Wisconsin, I see cell towers popping up all over the place almost every three miles. I clocked from Madison to Milwaukee, a new cell tower disguised as a tree, you know, with these branches, electronic branches coming out every three miles. And I know that each of these towers covers a distance circumference of six miles. This amounts to coverage all over the land. I mean, people are not going to be able to escape it unless they live under a rock. So, (laughs) um, So is there any other way when you're traveling and you're not in your house that maybe is protected that you can take something with you or that you can use supplements in some way that have you have you looked into that type of yeah so the principle that you are referring to now i and i have a whole chapter on this which i say is building resilience how do we build resilience in an individual in the face of um, you know this this increase of technology all around us and for that, I have a couple different um, things that I could I can recommend. So one of them is, you know, we just talked about melatonin, how that's a, a likely mechanism behind damage to the body. Well, for someone who is in a high-risk career, for instance, let's say they are um, an airline pilot, and not only are they going in and out of airports and going through scanners, they're also exposed to radiation just from being on the plane, higher up in the atmosphere. Well, certainly they might benefit from a low dose of melatonin on a regular basis, which which is clearly safe. I mean, we know for quite some time now that, um, you know, even high dose melatonin, which has its own research literature behind it, but even just the low dose melatonin of one to three milligrams. And you can get that now in sustained release where that the one to three milligrams is kind of uh, trickling out into the body over a period of time. And they can even take that during the day or in the evening. Um, we'll give a little bit of that protection and, uh, and pre-radical scavenging effect. Another one that I think is um, a pretty interesting tack to take is supplementing with magnesium. And the reason for that is because another mechanism, we didn't really get to dive into this one, but Dr. Martin Paul's work with voltage-gated calcium channels was very clear in his research of showing that when we are exposed to EMFs, there is an increase of tissue calcium that occurs. And so the, the solution to that, so to speak, biochemically speaking, is what's called a calcium channel blocker. How do we get that calcium either shuttled out or blocked from entering in the first place? Well, we have calcium channel blocker drugs. Uh, Pharmacology has known these drugs for quite some time, but a natural calcium channel blocker would just be simply magnesium. Magnesium and calcium kind of have this uh, relationship, like two ends of a seesaw. They counterbalance each other. And so it's not unheard of for 200 to 400 milligrams of magnesium to be very well tolerated by the average person, particularly even because a lot of us are, tend to be deficient in magnesium for a great many reasons. Uh, the forms that I like there are magnesium lactate, magnesium citrate, and magnesium threonate. But then again, two to 400 milligrams, very well tolerated. You'll know you're getting too much magnesium because you'll get loose stools at some point at a certain high dose. But anything under that dose, your body is going to utilize quite efficiently. And that magnesium may then, by extension, have this counterbalancing effect of this increase of tissue calcium that's being, uh, that's occurring uh, from exposure to EMF. The third one, which is a little bit of speculation on my part, but as an herbalist, I would feel, uh, I would feel like, uh, I'd feel bad not bringing this one up because <laughs> I love it so much. And it's ginkgo. Ginkgo is a fantastic mm. herb. And it, it's, it's, um, it's a tree that has been around forever. I mean, really, we're talking the time of the dinosaurs. They were ginkgo trees. Ginkgo is an amazingly resilient herb. Um, ginkgo trees are one of the few 
forms of life that survived the nuclear fallout, um, the atomic fallout, I should say, and uh, in Hiroshima. And so uh, these trees are just tremendous in how they are and how they can convey resilience to the body. And I, I, I point to a couple different, uh, you know, forms of research and the, the different flavonoids that are in ginkgo that, and at least in my speculation, um, can convey some resilience to the body in the face of radiation. And so although there is no specific research pointing one to the other, I've got this really strong suspicion that ginkgo is going to be a big player in terms of protecting the body from EMF. Oh, that's excellent information. Thank you for those last three uh, self-healing uh, options that are all natural. And ginkgo is, you're right, uh, something that was from the caveman days. And it is still alive and well. And it's wonderful for circulation between the head and the body, the heart and the brain. Um, and I use it too in my formulations. Thank you so much, Brandon, for having this experience so you could share all this work with us. <laughs> oh, you're welcome, Roseanne. Yeah. Um, how can people get a hold of your information in your book? Okay. Well, the book's available online everywhere, um, you know, Amazon and all the usual places. Um, if you want to kind of learn a little bit more about what I'm doing, and I, I have a blog and I write very specifically for the cancer community just to empower the cancer community, but there are certainly a lot of articles there that would apply to anyone who's just interested in holistic health, environmental medicine. Um, and that website's brandonlagreca.com. It's L-A-G-R-E-C-A. So brandonlagreca.com. Or if you just want to skip right to my blog, you can certainly do that. And that's just empoweredpatientblog.com. And that'll just kind of dive you right into all my writings on this subject and more. Wonderful. And we'll put these links in the show notes. Now, if people are local and they want to come uh, to see you for a treatment acupuncture how do they get a hold of you um so my clinic is in east troy wisconsin so in the kind of nestled in southeast wisconsin about an hour from madison maybe a little bit more and so my clinic website's just easttroyacupuncture.com thank you so much brandon oh it was a pleasure talking to you today roseanne and until next time healers lots of love visit or consult with roseanne Lindsay, naturopath at natureofhealing.org or you can find her books at her website and at amazon.com Hello, it is Ryan and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com I looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.